Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, and I'm working on a story, right? It's about events that happened when I'm four and five years old. And actually putting pen to paper, some of the details, they seem so ridiculous. I'm like, nah, nah, no way. This can't be right. My mind's playing tricks on me. So instead of working, I just start screwing around on social media, right? Just wasting time. And then, right then, I see a friend request. I check and recognize the name instantly. I can't believe it. It's from the girl, now the grown woman, who lived next to me when I was five years old in the middle of rural Michigan. And I type, hey, exclamation point, exclamation point. I ask her for a phone number and we talk. And all the years, everything just melt away. How's your mom? Your sister? I remember your father fondly. Yeah. And then, do you mind if I check a few memories with you? Did y'all really live in an underground house? Wasn't it your horse I was on when it was stung by that bee? And did we get locked in a root cellar? And that guy, that guy who was supposedly possessed of the spirit Fred? Turns out, I'm not crazy. We share the same recollections from the same ridiculous time, and we laugh, and we cry, and we finally hang up the phone. I can't wipe the smile off my face. Everything just feels more more real, more solid. I feel more real, just knowing that she is there after all these years. The connection burns bright. And I think about those connections, made over a lifetime, because... I love, I absolutely love having this person back in my life. Maybe it's because we move so much that I treasure the people that I knew and that knew me back when. But what if you received a call from the past and it didn't bring a smile to your face? Today on Snap Judgment, we're going to explore What happens when someone comes back into your life, someone you were not expecting? We're calling it, I'm your man. My name is Glenn Washington. See, sometimes the past is best left to the past when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Please note that this piece does contain some very dark elements. As such, listener discretion is advised. April Dombosky brings us her story. Welcome to KQED Voicemail. Please enter your extension. I'm staring at the phone on my desk. Press 5 to repeat the current message. I've listened to the current message three times already. Ms. Dombosky, it's Patrick Hurley calling. I'm a lawyer in Belleville, Ontario, Canada. He says he's calling about Stephen Bestercy. Uh, I understand that you uh, know him, and I'm calling you because I'm trying to find out some background information. 
he wants me to call him or email him or send him a time when he can call me. I look forward to talking to you. No matter how many times I listen, I can't figure out why a lawyer is calling me and what exactly he wants to know about my college boyfriend. Uh, I understand that you uh, know him. Know him? Steve and I dated for three and a half years. There was talk of marriage and babies. We lived together for a summer. But it's been 15 years since we broke up. Pretty much haven't talked since. Whatever it is I know or knew about Steve, what does it matter now? What does it matter to some lawyer? It's February 1998, Western Massachusetts. I'm sitting at the back of the bus. There are other seats open when this guy with the lumberjack coat gets on, but he sits next to me. I keep my eyes down on my book. After reading the same paragraph three times, I look past the page. My right leg is touching this guy's left leg. You enjoying that? The guy says to me, nodding toward my William James book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. I say something like, I think I'm going to major in religion, maybe philosophy. What college do you go to? I don't, the guy says. I just moved here a couple weeks ago. I was dropping off a job application at the shoe store on Main Street. We exchange names, and when I hint that my stop is coming up, Steve asks for my phone number. I tear a corner of paper from my notebook. I think I even draw a heart over the eye in my name. dorm room when the phone rings. We blow past the basics pretty quickly. Steve grew up in a suburb of Boston, has a sister, and plays guitar. He did a semester of college, but failed out because all he did was write music and record an album. He drove cross-country and worked as a bike messenger in San Francisco. His parents came to get him after he climbed into the woods in Lake Tahoe and swallowed a bottle of pills. first semester I spent in college, Steve spent in a series of hospitals. After his third session of electric shock therapy, he says he woke up and noticed the sunshine for the first time in his life. A couple more electric shock therapy sessions, and he was calling the new day beautiful. I'm so inspired by his honesty, I decide to offer up the confession that generally ends it with all the other boys. My dad died when I was 17, cancer. I tell Steve how when I was young, my dad used to pull me onto his lap so I could watch him paint, or he'd throw me around in the swimming pool. At the end, he was a skeleton of that man. Steve doesn't shift awkwardly on the other end of the phone. He doesn't go quiet. He doesn't fast forward, imagining himself the target of a daddy complex. He says, tell me more about him. After I listen to that voicemail from the lawyer about 10 times, I do something I haven't done in a decade. I Google Steve's name. The news articles pop up right away. Two years ago, Steve was arrested 
and he's about to go on trial for first-degree murder. He's accused of killing his wife. Apparently, he strangled her, and they tucked her dead body in bed and placed her stuffed turtle on the pillow. Uh, I understand that you uh, know him. This is why the lawyer is calling me? And I'm calling you because I'm trying to find out some background information. I can't tell if this lawyer is working for Steve or against him. Either way, my reaction is no way. I'm not getting involved in some murder case, not responding to that phone call, not writing back to that email. But then I get an email from Steve's dad, a plea. He says the evidence against Steve is overwhelming. He did it. But Steve's dad says his son doesn't belong in prison. He should be getting treatment in a long-term psychiatric facility. His lawyers are going for an insanity defense. And this is why they want my help. They want to know what Steve was like when I knew him. It's like they want me to recast Steve, the sensitive boyfriend I could have married, as Steve the crazy guy. Do they want me to take all the times Steve acted weird and line them up in a row to make him look sick? That's not how I remember him. Or am I the one remembering it wrong? It's summer, 1999, somewhere in Maine. Steve and I are driving five miles an hour through the middle of the woods. He takes me to our campsite, overlooking the most pristine lake I've ever seen. After dinner, I walk down to the edge of the water. I have a distinct sense that my dad is here. He tells me he's watching over me. He tells me he's the one who sent Steve to sit next to me on the bus. I come back to the campfire and Steve has pulled out a six-pack and his guitar. The closest I have to what Steve remembers from this time are these songs that he wrote and recorded about our time together. I still have this CD he made for me. Walking through the park in summertime with you I wanna be walking through the park in summertime with you Sunshine's beating down and you have a nice tan Yeah, sipping lemonade and you're telling me I'm your man I got two good folks and I love till the end Yes, they're still together and I know that they're still friends May I speak with Patrick, please? I call Steve's lawyer on a Tuesday. The trial is set to begin in less than a week. I haven't committed to anything yet. Just this phone call with the lawyer so we can check each other out. So I can find out exactly what he wants. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Hi, is this Patrick? It is. Hi, this is April. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm doing well. Relatively well. Right, right. Getting ready for this trial. So, um... Steve's lawyer starts to audition his case on me. A couple days after his wife was killed, Steve was pulled over by the police 200 miles north. He told them there was a vast government conspiracy, that people were after him. They'd implanted a device in his brain to listen to his thoughts. It's apparent, I think, to any person looking at the 
first statement that he was severely psychotic at the time. What in what way would my participation help? The lawyer says I would be what they call a collateral informant, someone the psychiatrist talks to to form a fuller mental portrait of Steve to help support the insanity defense. Somehow, what I say could be the difference between Steve going to prison for the rest of his life or going to get help at a psychiatric institute. And where is where is Stephen now? He is in the uh, hospital wing of the Quinney Detention Center. And does he... You said he understands what's happening to him. He just doesn't. Okay. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Stephen is 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 intelligent, articulate, friendly, but you know, you you sit there with him, and everything seems to be relatively normal, and he's not someone you're used to sitting across in a jail, believe me. And then he'll say something that is just. I mean, he still thinks things are implanted in him, and he still thinks that there's a government. Uh, agency that sees and hears through them. This sounds sort of familiar. Steve talked about all kinds of conspiracy theories with me, too. But when you're in love with the person who says them, you shake your head and ignore it. But it was this kind of talk that raised alarms for Steve's dad in the months leading up to the murder. One night after Steve put his fist through the car window, his dad called the police and said, my son is mentally ill. He needs help. Unfortunately, the police didn't do anything. Then his wife called the police again to say that Steve was living in the bushes outside her apartment. And so the police go there, a single officer who takes, a, I think, a fairly cursory look around, doesn't see him, and that's the end of it. His wife was killed that weekend. The lawyer says it was one system failure after another. For some reason, there's still a small part of me that doesn't want to believe this. The Steve I knew would hate the idea of all these people calling him crazy. I wonder if he'd hate the idea of me helping them. Um, does, so does he know that you're trying to contact me? Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, you know, uh, I, what I, I had to find out from him, first of all, who he had uh, had relationships with in the past, and the names he gave the doctor were mixed up. And so I called his dad. I said, do you recognize these names? And then he sort of put the names together. I, mean, he, I can tell you that Stephen didn't say April Dembowski. He, he he got the name April right, but other than that, uh, I see he didn't he didn't remember my last name. No. Oh, wow. Um. Uh, and so what? Um. Sitting on a mountain top, way up high. So high, so high She tried to tell me that I'm crazy and I tried Oh, I tried, yes, I tried and You haven't got the time, nor have I No have I, no have I To try and make amends with a looney tune, so bye-bye Bye-bye 
months after I meet Steve, I score a summer job at a law office. And one day, the paralegal comes back from her lunch break and says, there's a strange guy sitting on the bench outside the door. He was there when I left half an hour ago. Should we call the police? I get up from my desk and pull the curtain back a bit so I can get a look. That's my boyfriend, I say. I go outside. I say, Steve, you gotta get out of here. My boss is coming back from court. Steve got fired that morning for drinking. It was his second day on the job. For months, he's gotten by without working, selling his medications to his friends for rent money. It doesn't occur to me to worry about Steve or wonder if he should be taking those medications. Steve says every day is like fighting a new battle. But I accuse him of being lazy and not controlling his emotions better. We fight about his world and my world. My world is also called the real world, where people suck it up and work for the man. Steve's world is the land of music and feelings and losing control. We both long to inhabit each other's worlds. And there will be sunny days, I swear. Yes, sunny days, I swear. Stay with us, Snap listeners. When we return, April decides whether or not she will agree to be this collateral informant. When Snap Judgment, the I'm Your Man episode continues. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. When last we left, producer April Domboski was trying to decide whether or not she would agree to act as a collateral informant for her ex-boyfriend's murder trial. And she's beginning to see their long-finished relationship in a very new light. After I talk to Steve's lawyer, I'm afraid of getting more involved in the case. I'm having dreams of coming home from work, finding Steve sleeping in my bed, having dreams of him chasing me through my parents' house, trying to tackle me. I imagine Steve going to a psychiatric institute and then getting released and coming to find me. I still can't decide what to do. But then I get another email from Steve's dad. It says, as you can imagine, this has been a nightmare that we never imagined we would have to endure. He says, I can't tell you how grateful I am for your kindness and generosity in doing this. Hello? Uh, Hi, is this Dr. Bloom? Mm -hmm. My name is April Domboski. Right. It's the day before Steve's trial is about to begin. Dr. Hi Bloom is one of the psychiatrists who will give expert testimony on Steve. Listen, thank you for calling me. He assures me I won't be called into court to testify. He just wants more details to inform his own testimony. So first of all, I'm a psychiatrist. And in this case, I'm a psychiatrist who specializes in forensic psychiatry. It means I don't treat people and I don't generally form uh, doctor-patient relationships with them. So even though I'm hired by his defense counsel, I'm not cheering for Stephen. I'm not in any way attached to the outcome of the case. Okay. 
Is there anything else I need to do in order to help get you in your comfort zone? I can't think of anything that would make me more comfortable at this moment. Now, how do you know Stephen? And what drew you to him? What got you interested in him? Wow. Okay. Um, we just kind of had an immediate magnetic connection. He, he was a very emotional person. And that was something I was very interested in at that time. Meaning he was a man who could kind of um, talk about, he could, he could experience and talk about his feelings more so than maybe some other guys? Yeah, he was really good at that. Okay. How'd the relationship go? It, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was three and a half years, so it was a lot of different things feel, over. Feel free to kind of lay out the topography of it for me. He was really sweet. He was a really sweet guy. He was really sad. Did you know he had mental health issues going into the relationship? I did know that. I tell him about the confessions from our first phone call, the electric shock treatments, the suicide attempt. Yeah, it sounds like he was really quite forthcoming with you about his background. Yes. Yeah, a lot of, I suppose a lot of people would feel a bit unsteady about that, you know, at the outset of a new relationship. I tell him someone close to me had died. I felt like I was kind of intense, and I felt like Steve, he was able to handle that in a way that other people my age weren't. Other people my age were not used to talking about death or didn't want to talk about death. Sounds like he had a level of personal life experience that really resonated well with you and, and, and what you were going through at the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I think, just as I remember his history, you actually saw him or became involved with him at a time when he was generally doing a lot better than he had been doing previously and doing a lot better than he ended up doing considerably subsequently. Whoa. I got Steve's best years? Did you ever see firsthand any evidence of Stephen being delusional or psychotic? Um... There is one time, it feels... It feels like a betrayal to tell you. I'll, I'll tell you, and if it's helpful, but... Um, but this is one of those circumstances where the memory meant one thing before hearing about this case, and another thing after. There was one time um, early... During that first summer, when Steve couldn't hold down a job... I came over to his place, and he thought he was sitting outside of his apartment... On the floor, his knees tucked up under his chin. He said, don't, don't go in there. There's bugs everywhere. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, there's just bugs all over the floor. I open the door a crack and see the dark brown carpet. I imagine my toes squishing into a tide pool of ants. And I went in and I was like, Steve, there's no, there's no bugs in there. He's like, they're not? And I said, no, there's... There's no bugs in there. He was like, oh. He's like, he said, there's nothing like having your girl look you in the eye and tell you everything's going to be okay. Dr. Bloom asked if there was anything else like this, and I pony up Steve's spiritual beliefs for revision. He would talk about having spirit guides. Right. I mean, this is an example of something that at the time was at worst, a little bit woo-woo. 
Actually, I supported Steve's relationship with his spirit guides. The times he talked to them, he was calmer, able to hold down a job. Plus, he suggested my dad was one of my spirit guides watching over me. And I like that. I guess when you hear news like this, it starts to reshape memories that you have. You know, memories of him talking to his spirit guides and his spirit guides talking to him start to take on like a slightly different meaning or memory now. Dr. Bloom asks if Steve was controlling or jealous, and I hedge. Yes, he got jealous, like any other 21-year-old guy might. He didn't like it if I laughed too hard at another guy's jokes. But the things that really bothered me were times during my senior year when I started wearing different clothes or trying new hobbies. And I remember him being like, oh, well, that's not you. I mean, I took it as like, you're changing and I need you to be the same right? because I'm relying on who you were. When Dr. Bloom asks how the relationship ended, I say we just grew apart. Steve was seeing more and more things as spiritual. I was starting to wonder if all those mystical encounters with my dad were really psychological fantasies I had created for myself. For me, it was a phase. For Steve, it wasn't. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't sad anymore. I was situationally sad at the time when I met him and I had a lot to grieve, but I was, I was growing out of that and I, didn't need to be so sad all the time. Once when we were younger, she cried for all my fears. Now that I am older, I cry for all those years. I've always been here Yes, I've always been here degree murder trial of a Trenton man begins today in a Belleville courtroom. I follow the trial every day, reading the local newspaper. Then I fill in the gaps with the court transcript. The first witnesses will take the stand this afternoon. The day Steve meets Carolyn, he writes to his parents to tell them he just met the woman of his dreams. It was an immediate magnetic connection, and within three months, they move in together. Steve takes her on a camping trip and proposes. Her mom died of cancer when she was a teenager, just like me. Is that something Steve was attracted to? They're married two years when things start to unravel. Steve stops taking his antipsychotic medication, then gets laid off from his job. He sits at home all winter, smoking cigarettes. The bank forecloses on their house. Carolyn is getting food from a local food bank. Carolyn emails Steve's parents and says Steve stopped eating the food she cooks because he believes she's a witch and is trying to poison him. He believes there's a secret U.S. chemical laboratory buried under their home. 
In Carolyn's emails to her best friend, she says Steve has a few issues. Mainly, he's decided not to look for work and follow the rules of society. In August, Carolyn asks Steve to move out. In September, on a Friday, she calls the police and says Steve's been sleeping in her bushes, but they don't find him. On Monday, Carolyn doesn't show up for work. The police find her dead, in bed with the covers pulled up, the fan on, and her stuffed turtle on the pillow. Defense lawyer Patrick Hurley directed the jury's attention to Stephen Bestercy's mental state. Steve's lawyers start building their insanity defense. He is not criminally responsible due to a disease of the mind. Two forensic psychiatrists testify about Steve, including Dr. Bloom, the one I talked to. They describe one night, several months before Carolyn's death, but after Steve stopped taking his medication. Carolyn is upstairs in her bedroom. Steve is downstairs watching TV. A voice from the TV says to him, Relax in your chair. He becomes paralyzed. He can't move. Then he sees a tube, like a tube of water, snaking out of the TV. Steve says alien forces pin him down and assault his wife. After this, Steve says Carolyn starts to look and act like someone else. He follows her to work. He believes she's after him. A voice in a billboard tells him, You're married to an alien. Both psychiatrists say they are 100% sure that Steve has schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. The paranoid delusions, the grandiose spiritual powers, it all fits. And the way he talks about it all, his thoughts are so disorganized, they say it's impossible to fake. I drop the transcript on the floor and I bury my face into my knees. This is the undeniable portrait of a crazy guy. I finally believe it. I can't help but think of Carolyn, not calling the police, not insisting that he see a doctor. I start to think about all the times I got frustrated with Steve, not finding a job or showing up at my work. All the times I blamed him for being lazy. I never saw Steve as bad as he was with Carolyn, but I can imagine how she might have felt, telling herself that things will get better, refusing for so long to see how bad it really was. When she finally decides to leave him, she texts a friend and says, I still love him, but I definitely can't live with him. Brown attorney Jody White told the jury that the accused just couldn't take no for an answer from his wife. My heart starts to race when I see what the prosecutor does with Dr. Bloom's report about me. And killed her in an obsessive rage. She asks one of the psychiatrists about this part of my relationship with Steve. Question, and they appear to have had a quite amicable separation? Answer, yes. Question, and she says she doesn't see in him, she's never experienced with him, any violence? Answer, correct. Question, um, she does say he was jealous? Answer, she does. Every time the prosecutor brings up the report about me, she references Steve's jealousy streak. At every turn, she suggests that while Steve has a mental illness, he also has plenty of disagreeable features of a person without one. 
Maybe he had delusions about Carolyn, but maybe his own jealousy and anger were the stronger forces in this crime. In her closing statement, the prosecutor says the psychiatrist and Steve's family just won't take off their mental illness glasses. All they see in Steve is the patient. But she says Carolyn saw the man. She accepted him, his spiritual beliefs, and that is what made him so dependent on her. He needed her, and he was relying on her to stay the same. The jury deliberates for less than a day before delivering the verdict. They find Steve guilty of first-degree murder. He's sentenced to life in prison. A little while after we broke up, Steve and I went on a kind of date. We were thinking about getting back together. His mom wrote me a note during this time that said, we would be delighted if you and Steve saw your way clear to making a permanent commitment to each other. We'd love you to be part of the family. Steve and I went to the movies to see A Beautiful Mind. Russell Crowe plays John Nash as he develops his groundbreaking economic theory at Princeton while he slowly descends into a paranoid schizophrenic frenzy. Alicia, a young woman smitten with Nash's brilliance, marries him right before he starts shouting back at the voices in his head. While Nash is strapped to a bed, convulsing from electric shock treatments, Alicia's friend asks her what she's really feeling. And she says, obligation, guilt over wanting to leave. 35 years later, when Nash receives the Nobel Prize, he looks at Alicia in the audience and says, I'm only here tonight because of you. You are the reason I am. Steve and I let the credits roll to the end before we leave our seats and catch the 31 bus back to my place. It's crowded, so we inch down the aisle and stand in the back. Steve grabs one of the canvas straps overhead, and I reach up for the one next to it. He looks out the window and says, that's what it's like. I search his face for more. Then I lower my eyes and lean my forehead into his chest. I don't have to say things out loud to Steve because I know that he knows what I'm thinking to myself. Deep down, I always knew that Steve held dear a fantasy of a wife like the one in the movie, someone who would help him battle the demons in his head in defense of his genius. I shake my head. I can't do it, I say to myself. I just can't do it. The story comes to us from April Domboski. She originally produced it for The Leap, a podcast from KQED Public Radio about people making dramatic, risky changes. The Leap, check it out. We're going to have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. The music featured in this piece is by Stephen Bestersee. Additional music in this story, written by Renzo Gorio, with even more songs by Nick Dupre and Seth Samuel. That story was produced by April Domboski. From 
When Snap Judgment returns, just because it's little doesn't mean it's small. When the I'm Your Man episode continues, stay tuned. back to Snap Judgment, the I'm Your Man episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and we take this next story from our fiction catalog, and we think you are going to love it. It comes from the overactive brain of writer Manuel Gonzalez. He shrunk his wife. It was a mistake. One moment, she was her normal size, laughing at his pink tie, telling him to switch it out for the green one she got him last Christmas. And the next, she was the size of a mouse, kicking and biting at his shoe. He picked her up and put her in his pocket. She tried to sink her tiny nails into his shirt to tear at the cotton, but she was too small. She had no power. Unshrink me? Don't worry. I'll take care of you now. Protect you. What the f*** are you talking about? You shrunk me. Unshrink me. We don't know how to do that yet. What about that expansiator thing you said you got the money for that expanding thing at work? That's development. That's years off. Anyway, don't you think you could like it this way? Of course not. I want to go outside and see my friends. Okay, okay. I just need some time. Just for now, let's try and make things better. I'll make this right. He didn't make it right. He did have a multitude of enlarging tools back at the miniaturizing department. But instead, he built her a tiny house. He relished the smell of sawdust and wood and wood glue, the metallic smell that lingered on the tips of his fingers after handling so many small nails. He ordered one of his employees in the miniaturizing department to shrink down a dining room set, a nice bed, and a few sets of sheets. He had some fun shrinking a refrigerator and a whole shopping trip's worth of groceries. After he'd put all final touches on the house, he put it on his bedside table. And the next morning, he looked through the little windows at the unmade bed, the tiny lamp glowing in the living room. She was frying up some thin strips of bacon in the kitchen, muttering angrily to herself and avoiding his gaze and his cheerful, good morning. He wondered, Was it possible that they could be happy there together? He wondered if this mistake could be the solution to all their marital woes. She'd always made fun of his clothes, of his job, of the way he allowed his mother to boss him around. Now, he could continue to work. He would shrink pearl necklaces and other little trinkets for her in his lab. He'd tell friends she was on vacation, that she was taking night classes. He would sleep beside her in the little house every night. But the next evening, when he came home from work, he couldn't find her. He opened up the dollhouse, lifted up the bed, opened the dresser. She was gone. He thought, maybe she just needed some time. 
So he wrote her a note on a post-it. He couldn't change her back. But she would see. Life would be simpler this way. They would be happier. But his note went unanswered, untouched on the kitchen counter. He didn't see her for days on end. He started, in his way, to miss her. And so he miniaturized her cell phone. He put it on the dining room table in the little house where his wife could easily find it. He called the phone four or five times a day. But after a few days, she still hadn't returned any of his calls. Maybe the phone didn't work, he thought, or she had left, or maybe she was dead. But on the fourth day, he came back to his desk from a meeting and found a message on his office phone. Hey, it's me. I got your calls. I'm back in this stupid, tiny house. Let's talk this out. He missed her deeply then, the way she used to sling her arm over his side as they slept, the way she used to tap her feet to an unheard tune as she cooked dinner. He grabbed his jacket and left his office, sped home, his heart in his throat. He parked the car on the lawn, burst through the door, and took the stairs three, four at a time. He threw the dollhouse open. There she was, in the little bedroom, on the bed, her hair tousled, the sleeve of her nightgown falling from her narrow shoulder. Well, hello to you, too. What's going on here? What are you talking about? It's one in the afternoon. Why are you in bed? And why are you wearing that nightgown? What do you mean? What about it? That pink nightgown, the one I like so much. I was taking a nap. There's someone in here, isn't there? What? I bet you called Richard. Richard who? Don't play dumb like that. Richard. Richard Weir from my department. You couldn't stop laughing at his stupid golf jokes at the last company picnic. I bet you called him up, told him to shrink himself, and come right over, didn't you? Are you kidding me? Richard! Come out! I know you're in there! Don't embarrass yourself. Come on. Is he in the closet? Get out of the bed. I bet he's hiding under there. He isn't here. Oh, no. We'll see if that's true. What do you mean? Let's just see how you and Richard fare without sunlight or food or water. You'll need me then. I told you. He's not here. You can't trap me in here forever. Oh, no. Watch me. He locked his wife inside the dollhouse. He nailed the house shut covered the windows with squares of cardboard, glued and then duct taped from the outside. He threw a drop cloth over the little prison and weighted it down with bricks from the garage. Just wait. You'll be calling for me before you know it. You'll see. He came home the next night to find the dollhouse burned to the ground. He searched the charred embers and ashes for a sign of her, but he couldn't find one. He didn't know how she'd managed to free herself. And then it struck him. If she could escape and then destroy the dollhouse, what else was she capable of? That night, he wore earmuffs and swimming goggles to bed. He tied down the sheets, layered the bed three and four blankets thick. In the wee hours, the sickening smell of burnt flesh jarred him from sleep. He found a burned cockroach on the nightstand, speared through its abdomen by a tiny metal skewer. And out of the corner of his eye, he saw her small figure jump from the nightstand and scurry beneath the bedroom door. The next day, he starved the cat, and just before bed, he let it loose in the house. But he woke to find it, dead, 
on the pillow opposite him, covered as though it was taking a nap. How had she killed it? How had she moved it and settled it onto his pillow? The cat was well over five times her size. She had loved that cat. He didn't want to take any more chances, so he drew a bath, let it overflow, and flooded his bedroom. The water was two feet deep. He perched the bed atop brick stilts. He slept without earmuffs or headphones. He fell asleep and dreamed she was drowning in his moat. But she didn't drown. Instead, she climbed atop his pillow. But she was gone. He waited around his bed and found her boat, an old sardine can still slick with salt oil, and smashed it again and again until his hand was cut and bruised. He opened the bedroom door, and the water spilled into the hall. Can you see the white flag? Am I waving it high enough for you? He walked to the stairs where he slipped on the hardwood, tumbling down the 13 steps into the kitchen, and then, from the bottom of the stairwell, he spied her camp. A small hut made of a coffee tin and a couple of overturned Tupperware containers. Tiny spears lined the entrance, each bearing the head of a spider, a cockroach, a fly. There she sat, warming her hands at the fire, humming to herself. She was wearing scraps of grubby kitchen towels, crudely sewn together. Crawling towards her, he pleaded, Please! Please, let's solve this now. I'll do anything. I'll take you back to the lab. I'll set you right. She turned then. Her eyes were red, her smile crooked and wide. (laughs) He escaped from the back door. He stumbled through the overgrown weeds and brambles, the sad remnants of his wife's old vegetable garden. He pushed his way into the shed, and he clung to himself, shaking. He was safe. At least, until she found him. And she would find him. And destroy him. Tiny though she was. story was written by Manuel Gonzalez. Discover more of his writing at our website, snapjudgment.org. Special thanks to our narrator, rock superstar Tal Nguyen, who is currently the host of the Song Exploder podcast. Husband and wife are played by Sam Fishman and Eliza Smith. The original soundscape was by Pat Masini Miller, and that piece was produced by Eliza Smith. dug it you gotta know that more snap awaits stories all of them lovingly produced by the super friends of audio wherever you get your podcast get this one snapjudgment.org 
please give it up, if you don't mind, for the marvelous Mark Ristich. Powerful Pat Masini Miller, soaring Anna Sussman, Nancy, the fancy Lopez, Lisa Egan surveys all that she sees. Liz Mack, she sees all that she surveys. Eliza, the Wondersmith, magical Renzo Gorio. Leon, the cyborg Morimoto, tail, the laser cot. Shayna Sheely to the rescue. And Jasmine Aguilera fights evildoers from SNAP's orbiting Hall of Justice. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, from your evil lair, you can aim your shrink ray at SNAP's orbiting Hall of Justice only to have the beam bounce off of our cloaked quantum shield array. Even then, even then you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.